Praise the Lord. God bless all of you this morning. Amen. What an awesome opportunity the Lord has given us here today. Praise God to receive of Him what He has in store for us here today. The Lord is here. And because He's here, and because you're here gathered together in His presence, He can do anything. He wants to do anything in this place today. Praise God. Let's all stand. Let's call out to Him. Let's worship and praise Him. Let's call out on His name. He desires to do great things in this place. Are we ready to receive it? Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're a glorious, wondrous Savior. We are so thankful for You. We are so thankful for Your so great salvation. We are so thankful for Your presence in this place here today. Hallelujah, Jesus. We delight ourselves in You. And we're expecting awesome things of an awesome God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Not because of the great things we've done, or because we've earned anything from You, but for Your great name's sake. Hallelujah, Jesus. You desire to show Yourself strong. Thank You, Jesus. Show Yourself strong in this place today. Do exploits here today. Signs and wonders and great terrors. Hallelujah, Jesus. Let Your arm be stretched out mightily and wondrously in this place to accomplish all Your heart's desire to accomplish all of your mind here today. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and for your grace, your long-suffering patience to usward. Thank you, Jesus, that you hung on a cross and died in my place. You paid my sins for me. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. And if that weren't enough, you heal my body and my mind and my soul. You provide all of my needs. Hallelujah, Jesus. We have ought to be worthy to be thankful for here today. We have so much to be thankful for today. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you will accomplish here today. I pray, Lord, that as we bind together as one, entering into your presence, that we would feel after you, that we would be found of you here today. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus, that your heart would be manifest and accomplished in our lives here today. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Before we continue and before we don't dismiss the youth, uh, we'd like to welcome our guests today. Amen. Jason DeMuth, Hillary Church is with us today. Praise God. There they are. <laughs> I'm told that uh, Jason received a to-do list as soon as he stepped through the door. Amen. (laughs) Oh, good news travels fast. (laughs) Amen. Just pick up where they left off, huh? (laughs) Amen. Well, we're so happy to have you with us this morning. If you have need of anything, let one of our ushers know. We'll accommodate that for you. Praise God. Amen. Uh, The youth will be joining us here this morning. Uh, There will be no treats served, uh, but maybe maybe during break. Maybe during break. Amen. Amen. As a review from last week, uh, we talked about uh, the paralytic, his four friends, tearing a hole through the ceiling and dragging him down and placing him at the feet of Jesus. We saw that Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic's friends. 
it could be that Jesus, being who He was, discerned the faith that they had. But I believe that, I mean, it was very obvious for all to see. He saw their faith. He saw it being demonstrated by the fact that they tore a roof through the man's, they tore a hole through the man's roof to get to Jesus. They wouldn't have done that if they weren't expecting something awesome. Praise God. And they got exactly what they were expecting. The paralytic sought Jesus for a healing, but he received forgiveness of sins initially instead. Jesus knows at all times exactly where we are at and what we have need of. At any given moment of any given day, he knows exactly where we're at and he knows exactly what we have need of in that moment. Amen. And spiritual healing is always the priority. We certainly desire physical healing in our bodies when that uh, becomes necessary, but the spiritual healing is always His priority. Amen. The Pharisees rebuked Jesus for doing something only God had the authority to do. And they were right in calling that out, that only God can forgive sins. Their premise was true. It was correct. But their conclusion was so wrong that He was committing blasphemy for saying that. Because they completely missed who Jesus was. Jesus demonstrates His deity to us by doing or by saying things only God can do. In this case, He forgave the man's sins and demonstrated that that actually took place in immediately healing His body afterward. The outward healing served as proof that He was forgiven. That Jesus really was God and that He did really have the authority to forgive sins. And He still forgives sins today. He's not a man. He will not respond to us when we come to Him with our failures as you and I would. Let us stew a while. Let us soak in it for a little bit so that we can pay for it. So that we realize what we've done. That's not how God operates. God's desire is mercy. God's desire is to forgive our sins. That's why He died on a cross to begin with. Amen. He delights in mercy. He wants to forgive. Daily devotions. They started off the devotions uh, by making a couple points. Matthew 6 and 10 says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And in uh, Matthew 16, 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven demonstrating that there is a very real connection between the secular and the spiritual. We need, to, we need to understand that. When we operate in the physical, things begin to move in the spiritual. Well, how does that work? Prayer is, is a physical process. I mean, I'm using vocal cords. I'm using air to, to speak words out into the air. My body is adopting some posture. I'm lifting my hands. I'm, I'm on my knees. Uh, Those are physical acts. But those physical acts cause the spiritual to respond in kind. When I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping with my body. I'm worshiping with my mouth. But I'm connecting spiritually with the presence of God. When I'm fasting, that's a spiritual exercise, but it happens in the physical. I stop eating Food is physical. My body is physical. My hunger pains are physical. But that's causing things to happen in the spiritual. 
when I speak a word, teach a Bible study, preach or teach, give my testimony. That's a physical act, but it causes spiritual results. And when things begin happening in the spiritual, they manifest in the physical. Healings, miracles, provision, all of these things happen in the spiritual first. Way before sometimes they manifest themselves in the physical. And a reminder that we are ambassadors and can only manifest God's will, not our own. We are not called to manifest our own will. We are called to manifest God's will. Amen. Day one. Again, it's sometimes really hard to find God on Easy Street. He doesn't visit there very often. It's much easier to find Him on the hard, rocky roads. The dark, desperate times are where He is most often found by us. Knowing that, let's try and reform our perspective of these places. If the easy places and the places of secular ease are places of spiritual famine, do I really want to spend a lot of time there? Well, yes and no when you put it like that. I still want easy. But I also want growth. I also want to be perfected. I also want the presence of God in my life. If the hard places are places of secular hardship and spiritual prosperity, isn't this where I should desire to be? Or at the very least, maybe I shouldn't fear and dread them like I do at present. Maybe I should adopt a different perspective of these places when I'm going through a hard situation, a difficult time that forces me to lean on God and trust in Him that causes me to grow and to stretch my faith. Maybe I should view that a little bit differently in the place of ease where I can rest and relax and quite honestly, don't really need God at the moment. Maybe I should look at that place a little bit differently too. Because I I need to realize I need God every moment of every day. Whether I'm at ease in Zion or whether I'm in my most difficult spot in my life, I need God every single day. Day two, the Soviet cosmonaut didn't see God during his flight because he already knew that God didn't exist. We've talked at length, at nauseum, about worldviews and how they affect the way that we live and decide things. Uh, Like the cosmonaut, the Pharisees couldn't see Jesus for who He was because they already knew who the Messiah would be. And this wasn't it. Jesus definitely wasn't it. Be very careful that your preconceived ideas about God and about how God operates doesn't end up limiting what God can do in your life. It may even cause us to miss Him altogether. He may, do, he may be trying to do something in our lives, speak something into our lives, and we completely miss it. Because we're not expecting God to operate that way or to move in, in that area. Let's let God do what He wants to do when He wants to do it. Day three, the many physiological benefits of prayer were listed. Boosts immunity, increases coping mechanisms, increases optimism, improves self-control. Uh, There are many other benefits that weren't listed. I've heard uh, listed in other places. In other words, prayer has 
benefits outside the spiritual. Uh, for me, that's icing on the cake. I would pray regardless uh, because of the spiritual benefits. Uh, but, again, if that weren't enough, you get all kinds of physical benefits as well. Amen. Day four. What demonstrates faith like praising and thanking God for an answer to prayer before He gives it? Nothing in my mind. Haven't heard an answer, haven't received an answer, but I'm going to thank Him anyway. I'm going to worship Him because I know it's coming. George Washington Carver expressed his desire that all people would see the Creator, quote, in the smallest and most insignificant things about them, unquote. Imagine how much more amazed we would be at the great things of God if we could be amazed at the so-called common things in His creation. Amen. If we were amazed at the properties of water, for example. Anybody ever study the properties of water? That just comes to mind. Water is an amazing substance. Absolutely fascinating how it's designed and how it operates. Anyway, Study it out. It's fun. Day 5. The Greek word meaning witness gave rise to the English word martyr, revealing that the apostles proclaimed their witness at their own peril, very often at great cost. <laughs> I like this story here. Uh, years after the Civil War ended, two Confederate veterans reminisced about their battles around Paducah, Kentucky. One veteran bragged about how they pushed the Yankees across the Ohio River and into Illinois. The other veteran quickly corrected that he was there, and it was the Yankees who drove the Confederates almost to the Tennessee line. The bragging veteran Riley commented, Another good story ruined by an eyewitness. <laughs> we are to bear witness to the truth of Scripture and to what Jesus has done in our lives. We don't have to make false claims about God or about Scripture. And we certainly don't need to exaggerate anything God has done in our lives, our testimony, to make a point. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. Sometimes I'm tempted to do that. I have no idea why. It's not necessary. God did what God did. That's all that needs to be reported. Praise God. Amen. Our lesson today. We'll be talking about go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. These men wore their badges proudly. They were the self-commissioned purity police. They roamed around with their ticket pads open and pens drawn, ready to write anyone up who broke Moses' law. On that day, they finally found the purity police's most wanted. They planned a raid to arrest her in the act, but they were not just after her. They wanted to use this opportunity to arrest Jesus. They could hardly sleep a wink that night as they tossed and turned their ears rang with the blasphemous words of that carpenter saying, quote, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37-38 They had heard worship as some of the crowd was, who was listening began believing. Some had even hailed him as their Messiah. But he couldn't be their Messiah. He's just a carpenter. From Nazareth, no less. They had studied the law. They knew what the Messiah would be like, what He would do. They even knew where He would come from. He'd come from Bethlehem. Not from Nazareth. This imposter was no Messiah. 
Jesus had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. During this holy feast, the Jews remembered the hardships their ancestors had experienced as they wandered through the wilderness after God set them free from Egyptian slavery. Jesus was ruining their holy festival. In the name of righteousness, they had to put a stop to His teaching, even if that meant putting a stop to Him. As they schemed, they finally fell asleep. As the sun began to peak above the plain, Jesus was already up, headed down toward the city. Merchants in the marketplace were dabbing dew off their carts, opening up for the day. Jesus nodded at them as He headed for His house, the temple. He was greeted warmly by a full house, some familiar faces, some new faces. Everyone was there to hear what this wonder worker would say. The day before, He had promised they could be filled with the Spirit of God. What would He promise this day? Some leaned against the outside walls with their arms folded, still not sure what to think, but curious what he would say. Others sat close, hanging on every word, hoping to hear a specific word from him for them. Suddenly they heard screams and shouts as the purity police paraded in, dragging a woman behind them. We pick up this account in John chapter 8, which we'll read now, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, says this. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen. Now this scene is is a little bit contrived. It's a little bit of a setup, as I see it. How did the Pharisees know where to find the woman? Where was the man? If they were indeed caught in the act, as the Pharisees told Jesus, caught in the act with who? Where's this guy? Why drag her publicly to the temple and announce to the crowd what she had done? That wasn't necessary. Jesus had nothing to do with these proceedings. He was not a recognized civil or religious authority, certainly not by the Pharisees. Why bring her before Jesus? Why not just take care of it? Well, the answer, of course, is that they planned to use this scene to trap him. John 8, 4 through 6, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? 
This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Amen. This reminds me of another account where they tried to trap Jesus. In Matthew 22, beginning with verse 15. If you study logic or or, uh, argumentation at all, this is the epitome. This is the pinnacle of uh, rebuttal. (laughs) I mean, this is just so awesome. It says, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, referring to Jesus. How are you going to entangle God in his talk? I mean, seriously. Anyway, they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of truth, God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, see, they're setting him up here. If Jesus says, yes, it's lawful, he would be accused of setting up Caesar in the place of God. If he said, no, it's not lawful, well, he'd be accused of uh, causing them to break Roman law. Perfect plan. We got him no matter what. But Jesus says, perceiving their wickedness, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny, and he saith unto them, Whose is this inscription and superscription? Image and superscription. They say unto him, Caesar's. And saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled left him and went their way. I mean, this seems absolutely amazing to me. But this is easy for God. This is just... Are you serious? This this is the best you got. Alright, here we go. The perfect trap was completely laid to waste by one statement from Jesus. Here he is again in another perfect trap. If Jesus says, let her go, the Pharisees will accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. This would turn the people away from Jesus. If Jesus says, execute her, then he's guilty of advocating that they break Roman law. Under Roman law, they couldn't execute anyone under their law. They were forbade from doing that. Forbidden from doing that. They couldn't lose. It's the perfect trap. You're not going to trap Jesus. You're not going to entangle Him in His words. You're not going to find Him speaking any contradictions that you can take advantage of. He speaks truth. Pure, unadulterated truth. That's what He speaks. That's why there are no contradictions in Scripture, folks. That's why Scripture comports with reality. It it agrees with Everything here. Jesus responds not with an answer, but with silence and with action. He kneels down. He starts writing on the ground. Well, of course, the obvious question that everyone likes to try to answer is, what was he writing? 
I've heard several ideas. Obviously, we don't know. Okay, let's get that out of the way. No one knows. Jesus knows. Maybe the people that were present there know. I don't know. Neither do you. We can speculate, and it's fun to speculate. Perhaps he was simply trying to diffuse a volatile situation by taking a breath and writing a few words. Perhaps Jesus stooped down to show he was not standing over the woman in judgment. Maybe he was writing the names of women the accusers had inappropriate relationships with or other sins they had committed. Or maybe the words were meant for the woman to encourage her. Again, in any case, we've no idea. But what did happen is the Pharisees began to get frustrated with his silence. And his, uh, he was just ignoring them. So he, they continued to press him for an answer. Have you ever insisted that someone answer a question of yours and when they finally did answer, you wished you hadn't asked in the first place? I tried to think of an example. I know I have one, but I couldn't remember one. But I have heard of examples uh, of people proposing to their girlfriends in front of huge crowds. And the girl was stunned and, and didn't know what to say. So, keep pressing, keep pressing. And then she says, no. In front of everybody, God and everyone. I wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> We should not listen to our accusers, church. We should listen to Jesus Christ. There are voices in this world, there are entities in this world that will seek every opportunity against you. They will seek to come to you when you are at your lowest, at your weakest, when you're tired and frustrated and discouraged, and start whispering in your ear. He doesn't come around too often when we've just got out of the presence of God and we're, we're strong and, and we feel encouraged and strengthened. He's smarter than that. He's read Sun Tzu also. Never attack a strong enemy. Attack them when they're weak. Attack them when they're separated. That's when he attacks. And this enemy will tell you, you're a failure. This is what you do. This is who you are. Don't listen to that, folks. Because it contradicts Scripture. It contradicts what Jesus tells us. It contradicts, in fact, His very mission. His very reason for manifesting Himself in the flesh. It contradicts all of it. He came to forgive Jesus had not liberated the accused woman yet, but He hadn't accused her either. Jesus was not hostile toward her. He didn't humiliate her in any way, any more than the Pharisees already had. He didn't do any of that. I kind of like to imagine that uh, in, in His desire to help the woman, He was focused on her and ignoring the accusers along with her. To be in a right relationship with God, we often have to ignore accusers. Sometimes they manifest in flesh, family, friends, people that you respect and admire. 
The devil knows us inside and out. He knows us all the bad parts of us, all the failures, all the chances that we've used. He knows that. He's been around for a good 6,000 plus years. He studied humanity the entire time. He knows the Word of God inside and out. He knows you. I'm flawed. I always end up doing wrong. Is that you speaking? Or is that someone else that you're listening to? Folks, we need to get to the place where we are no longer listening to our enemy. We cannot listen to him and prosper. We cannot listen to him and live a victorious life like Jesus wants us to live. Jesus died that we would be forgiven and that we would live victoriously over sin. Amen. Other people might mock our attempts to live for God, saying it won't last. Yeah, you've tried this before. I know how it ended last time. Don't listen to that. This is a new day. This is a new opportunity. This is a new chance to serve God with your life. Just because I failed in the past doesn't mean I'm going to fail today. Failure is an event, not a person. I like that very much. I may have failed, but I'm not a failure. I'm a child of God. And at some point, I need to start living like that. At some point, I need to start believing that I'm a child of God and start living and walking and operating as if that's true. i got to start accepting the fact that God adopted me into His family. As incredulous as it may seem, as fantastic and as wonderful as it might be, I've got to start believing that because Scripture tells me this. Jesus tells me this, that I am His. I'm His Son. He's given me His name. I need to start believing that. John 3.17 says, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to judge. He will judge in the last days. He will be the righteous judge. Make no mistake about that. But He is not here to condemn anyone. He's here to save everyone. So we shouldn't condemn either. We shouldn't judge either. We shouldn't look down our noses at people because they dress different, speak different. Hey, here's a clue, folks. When you're in Egypt, you're going to look like an Egyptian. You're going to talk like an Egyptian. You did, and so did I. I talked just like them when I was out there. I dressed just like him when I was out there. Thank God someone didn't look down on me because I came to Bible study in a tank top and spandex shorts. Can you imagine? Don't, don't, 
Please don't imagine. I only bring that up to say that I was dressed pretty horrifically. But no one said anything. They were just glad I was there. They loved me. They wanted to see me make a move for God. Because of, because of how they responded to me, I did make a move for God. Praise God. If they would have looked down on me, they would have said, Dude, you need to take care of this before you come back. I don't know how I would have responded to that. Maybe, maybe I was at a point where I, I, would, I just didn't care. Yeah, whatever. They did tell me eventually. I kept showing up in it. <laughs> People are ignorant, folks. They just, they don't know. I didn't know. I had no clue that you're not supposed to dress like that. But folks, Jesus didn't come to condemn people who are ignorant. He came to love them, to lead them to a place of repentance, to save them. That's how we need to respond to people. Someone comes through those doors, dressed however it is they dressed, praise God. Thank God they're here. Jesus can do something for them. They talk like the world. Grin and bear it, folks. Now, we do acknowledge that sin, all sin, it's a big deal. It is. It's a big deal. It destroyed God's creation. The sin curse is on His creation because of us, because of Adam. Death and disease and misery and suffering entered into the world when Adam sinned. Sin is a big deal. But Jesus came to fix it. Jesus came to take care of it. To destroy the works of the enemy. To destroy sin. To destroy death. He came to destroy all of that and to make all things new. To make all things new again. Amen. He came not to condemn, but to save, to deliver us. Jesus finally answers the question. They keep pressing Jesus for an answer. He finally stands up and gives them one. John 8, 7. So when they continued asking Him, He lifted up Himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Again, in one sentence, Jesus blows the entire scheme apart. According to the law of Moses, since we're so worried about the law of Moses, Pharisees, when someone was sentenced to death by stoning, one of the witnesses of that capital crime had to cast the first stone. Then the other witnesses could join in. Oh, the law of Moses also required judgment for the other party as well. Someone didn't just get to make baseless accusation against someone as a capital offense and be done. Because if they were caught lying about it, that same punishment that they sought for the accused would come upon them. Whoopsies. So you want to you don't want to just throw that stuff around willy nilly. You want to make absolutely sure. 
if the Pharisees were so interested in seeing righteousness prevail in Israel, they would have to carry out the sentence according to the law right then. If you're without sin, go ahead. Execute the law of Moses. Of course, they weren't willing to do that. Jesus knew their motives. They weren't interested in seeing justice done. They weren't interested in righteousness. They were interested in accusing Jesus, trapping Jesus. And since they were so interested in his views on the situation, he added the qualification for who was able to carry out this capital sentence. Someone with no sin of his own. Eventually, after Jesus answered the question, he stooped back down and began writing again. Going back to ignoring the Pharisees. I can imagine that as they sat and thought about the answer, saw Jesus, they started to get really upset. They started to get really mad. I imagine this because... All of their perfectly laid plans were again destroyed. They couldn't trap him. They couldn't make him look bad. Everything he did just made him look better. Their consciences were pierced. They were made aware of their hypocrisy, even if they wouldn't acknowledge it. Then from the oldest to the youngest, they left. It appears that even the crowd eventually left. Then Jesus asks her a question. In John 8.10 When Jesus had lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman, He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? John 8.11 She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And folks, He was the only one that could. He was the only one that had the authority. He had the right to condemn her. He was sinless. He was perfect. If he wanted to, he could have judged her right then and there. She was guilty, folks. There was no mistake about that. There were other guilty parties, but she certainly was as well. But Jesus doesn't. The only one that could. The only one that had the right to didn't. Chose not to. Chose mercy instead. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now some Christians are troubled by this story and other modern examples of it because it seems as if Jesus is treating sexual immorality just like insignificant. Doesn't, doesn't amount to much. Do you think that? Do you think that's how Jesus felt about it? God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one that gave Moses the law. We know how God feels about it. But how do you think the woman felt standing in the presence of Jesus? Knowing. Knowing for a fact that she's guilty. I don't know how she felt about Jesus, if she recognized Him as her Messiah, or if she just saw Him as a a prophet or a good teacher. I don't know how she thought about Him. 
But I can imagine there was some level of respect there, some level of admiration there for what this man just did for her. How did you feel when you first stood before Jesus? Bringing all your baggage, all your failures, all your sins before Him. I still remember how I felt. I'm making a point. I remember how I felt. And I remember how it felt when He forgave me. That's why I remember. That's why I want to remember how I felt coming to Him. I remember how I felt after I left. Like every weight was lifted. How did you feel when Jesus cleansed you of all of that baggage, all of that sin, forgave you completely, made everything in your life brand new? How did you feel at that point? Do you think people need to be reminded that they've failed? That they've sinned? Now, I will admit there are probably opportunities. There are probably instances where it does need to be discussed, brought up, addressed. Absolutely. But by and large, folks, people know they've done wrong. Especially when they're standing in the presence of Jesus. When you see someone is being convicted of their sins, when you see God is operating in someone's life, You don't need to start railing them. God's already dealing with that. They need to see someone demonstrating the forgiveness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. Let God forgive them. Let God cleanse them and make everything in their life new as well. Just like He did for you. Just like He did for me. I didn't need someone telling me every single thing I did wrong. When I came to that altar, God was bringing it all up. He brought everything. I didn't need anyone telling me. It was flashing right there. And I confessed it just as fast as I could. Because it just kept coming. God forgave all of it. And afterward, the people of God demonstrated Jesus to me, hugged me, praised God for what God was doing in my life. It was amazing. It was beautiful. That's what we all need, folks. That's what we all need. If Jesus isn't going to condemn me, If Jesus isn't going to condemn them, I can't either. I I was given a a movie to watch just a little bit ago. uh, Brother McGinnis, uh, Jesus Revolution. Has anyone... It's a pretty good movie. Uh, The premise of it is that it was set in the 60s, you know, the, the Jesus movement. Uh, all these hippies doing drugs and, and uh, free love and all of that stuff. 
Well, this this old preacher with an old staid church, uh, they looked down on the hippies. They would judge the hippies because they were sinning. They were doing drugs. They were sleeping around with whoever was available at the moment. But then he met one. And this guy tried to explain why that was. This generation, he said, is lost. We're looking for something real. We're looking for something with substance. But we're, we're looking in all the wrong places. And the reason they speak the way they do and the reason they dress and act the way they do is because in their own way, they were looking for something real. They were looking for God. And when the, the man came to that realization and he stopped looking down on them, and, I mean, there was a lot more to the movie, but uh, just the point for this lesson today. He stopped looking down at them and started loving them and started accepting them for who they were. There was an explosion. They were finding God by the droves. They were baptizing by the droves. It, it's a historical thing. Look it up. I mean, it swept the nation. I wasn't around. Well, maybe I was around at the time, but... No. Not in a place where I could remember it. <laughs> I was born in the late 60s. But anyway, <laughs> I don't remember it. But anyway, uh, yeah, it was a huge deal. And it all started with that. The simple fact that instead of judgment and condemnation, they were approached with acceptance and love, forgiveness, mercy. It made all the difference in the world. When Jesus came and, and wrapped Himself in flesh and suffered on a cross, He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. Now you and I, we are not God. And sadly, we don't often respond to situations like God does. When someone cuts me off on the road, I, uh, it's been a while since I've driven, so I'm still okay with it. But I'm hoping it stays that way. Because eventually, I mean, I remember before, that would frustrate me to no end. Didn't, didn't he see me? I mean, no, he probably didn't. I'm, I'm sitting here about to have a heart attack. A little vein of my thing. Popping and spraying all over the place. And the guy doesn't even know I'm there. I'm getting all worked up. I'm going to die here. And he, he doesn't even know I, I exist. He's got his own stuff to, to worry about. And, and so, when people do stuff to us, we like to get up on our high horse. Well, bless God, you wronged me. And it's a long time sometimes before we can get around to blessing that individual with our forgiveness. Because of what they did. It was wrong. And if I just forgive them willy-nilly, then they're not going to learn the lesson. They're not going to learn that what they did was wrong to me. They're going to keep doing it. 
of course, when it's the other way around. You've got to understand. I didn't know. You've got to understand. You can't judge me. You've got to have mercy. Jesus says to have mercy. You've got to love me. In a larger context, being Christ-like is really difficult sometimes. It ought not be. We have the Spirit of God resident in us. He has made us new creatures. We are not that person anymore. We are new. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We have been given power. We've been given authority. We have been commissioned as ambassadors to demonstrate Jesus to this world, to show them who Jesus is, and tell them. But when we get into a situation, not just a situation of forgiveness, but any situation, rather than give ourselves excuses, well, I'm Irish, I'm German, I'm a redhead, yeah, I'm all three. <clears throat> so I just... <laughs> if I let the, the two over here grow out, you could see that it's not red. <laughs> Probably white now. <clears throat> but we give ourselves excuses. I respond this way because, well, I've just had a bad day. I've just had a, a hard day, a hard week, whatever it is. But folks, we don't need excuses. We don't need to make excuses for why I'm not living up to my potential. Why I'm not doing what He has commissioned me to do. He's given me everything I need right now to show someone Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit ought to be manifest in us. That ought to be a natural result, a natural consequence of who we are now. Whereas before, it was the works of the flesh that I would demonstrate and manifest. Because that's who I was then. But that's not who I am now. I'm a child of God now. I'm filled with God's Spirit. I have His name. So now I am demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, right? I ought to be. But not when it's only, not only when it's convenient. Not only when it's easy. That fruit should be coming no matter what because that's who I am now. When someone cuts me off on the road, I'm demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. When someone insults me, I'm demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. That old slogan, was it 90s? What would Jesus do? WWJD. Had everything. Bracelets, bumper stickers, everything. That's a good question to ask. How would Jesus respond in this situation? That's how I ought to respond in this situation. Jesus forgave people that nailed him to a tree. Can I forgive someone for a, a slight? I hope so. Jesus forgave me a, a whole lot more than that. And he had the right to judge me. 
I don't have the right to judge anyone. I don't have the right to hold forgiveness back from anyone because I've received forgiveness. I don't have the right to hold love back from anyone because I've received the love of God. I need to demonstrate Jesus in every situation. And it ought not be difficult or hard. I think I can do it this time. I don't think that that should be the case. It should just come naturally because that's who we are. We're children of God. If we are children of God. That's who we are. That's how we respond. And I'm thankful that I'm that person now. I'm thankful that in in any situation, I can respond like Jesus would. And it's it, it and it's not forced, and it's not fake it till it make it. Going through the motions brings on the emotions. It's not like that at all. It comes from in here. I can love that person that seems to hate me right now. Because Jesus loves that person that seems to hate Him right now. I don't have to have love reciprocated anymore. I used to. If you didn't love me, well, I'm not going to love you. If you don't like me, I'm not going to like you. I don't have to be like that anymore. I don't need your love. I need the love of God. I want I want a good relationship with you. I want to be friends. But I don't need that. I don't need that to validate me anymore. I don't need that to to make me comfortable around you anymore. You can hate my guts if you want. I'm going to continue to love you with the love of the Lord. Because God loved me when I hated him. I wouldn't have said I hated him. I would have said I love him. But my actions demonstrated things entirely different. I can demonstrate Jesus every single day. I can respond in every situation like Jesus would. Amen. And he can help us do that. He's given us the tools we need. He's given us everything we need. And if we fail, we can repent. We can get back up. And He's going to give us another opportunity, folks. Praise God. In conclusion, Jesus handled this very difficult and tricky situation so graciously and wisely. In just a few minutes with a single sentence, not only did He destroy His opponent's effort to discredit Him, but He also ministered to the woman and helped turn her from her sin and set her on the path of salvation. The command to sin no more seems impossible, but she was not left on her own. Right before this suspicious scene in the temple, Jesus taught, quote, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. After Jesus' resurrection, he would guide her so she could come to receive the Holy Spirit to give her new spiritual life and to empower her to walk with him. His spirit within her would be a continual source of spiritual life, vitality, and power to live the life he called her to live. 
Thankfully, through the life-giving power of the Spirit, we too can drink more deeply of the Spirit in order to live a life above the bondage of sin. It's not complicated. And nothing about living for God is complicated. Nothing in the Scriptures is complicated. We make it complicated. But if we would just submit ourselves to it, it's easy. It's simple. Most of us already know what to do to open our lives wider to the working of the Spirit. Let's fill our days with daily prayer and Bible reading. Let's join together weekly with other believers in services for worship and to hear the Word proclaimed. And let's fast on a regular basis to disconnect from the world and draw closer to God. In calling us to heed Jesus' command, let us do what will enable us to do just that. And let us always remember we are living for our gracious and loving Lord, who is for us, who will help us, who will forgive us when we inevitably stumble, and who will pick us, up, pick us back up so we can keep walking. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, you're an amazing God. I am so thankful for you. I'm thankful for what you did at Calvary. I'm thankful for every single thing you've done in my life. I thank you, Lord, that you've made us a new creature, that old things are passed away, all things are become new, that you have given us every tool, everything that we need to serve you, to please you, to live for you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that in each and every situation we face, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, the rest of our lives, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would enable us to do everything exactly as you would, to respond to situations as you would, to respond to people as you would, to see people as you see them, to feel towards them as you feel. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see with your eyes, to hear with your ears, to demonstrate you to this world. These things we ask in Jesus' name.